Years ago, a friend and mentor and former pastor got to worship in an underground church in China. And before he left, he asked the pastors of that church, how can my church pray for you when I return home? And one of the pastors spoke up and said, whatever you do, do not pray that the persecution ends because we don't want to turn into what the church has turned into in America. We don't want to turn into that church. My friends, we live in a world where the truth is hard to find, where we often don't know what to believe because we don't know who is telling the truth and who isn't. Remember when as kids we used to say, liar, liar, pants on fire? <laughs> Sometimes I wish that really happened. It would make watching the news a whole lot more interesting. Uh, but the world is straying more and more from the truth, and the results are devastating. The moral fabric of this country is wearing away as people don't know what or who to believe anymore. It seems that more and more we're seeing good young people who were raised in Christian homes, educated in Christian schools, turning their backs on Christianity because they're confused about what's really true. Because of all the lies and deceit, there's, there's a heaviness, even among believers, that, that's robbing us of peace and hope and freedom that our God longs for us to experience. We live in a world where truth has become relative, where there is your truth and my truth, and our truth is whatever we decide it to be. Well, my friends, I don't know how else to say it, so I'm just going to put it out there. There is no such thing as your truth and my truth. There is only God's truth, and it's time we get back to it. Today, I want to share with you just one truth, one truth from God's word. But friends, it is a truth that has the power to change our lives forever. A truth that if fully embraced in the depths of our soul, will without a doubt give us the peace, the hope, the freedom that we all desire, that God desires for us. So here it is. Only four words, but a profound truth that will set you free. Are you ready? Say it with me. The grave was empty. The grave was empty. You know, on Good Friday, Christians commemorate the crucifixion of our Jesus. But had the story ended with the cross, there would be no peace or hope or freedom in our lives today. But because our Jesus, when it looked like all hope was gone, rose victorious over sin and death and hell, we also have freedom over sin and death and hell. And friends, that is not just something we celebrate on Easter. We should celebrate that every day. Now, here is Luke's account of that glorious morning. On the first day of the week, very early in the morning, the women took the spices they had prepared and went to the tomb. They found the stone rolled away from the tomb. But when they entered, they did not find the body of the Lord Jesus. While they were wondering about this, suddenly two men in clothes that gleamed like lightning stood beside them. In their fright, the women bowed down with their faces to the ground. But the men said to them, 
why do you look for the living among the dead? He is not here. He has risen. My friends, the grave was empty. That is the central truth to Christianity, a truth that gives us freedom from the shackles of sin and shame and anything the enemy would use to hold us captive, a truth that gives us freedom that whether people want to admit it or not, this world is desperate for. Now, I would imagine that most of us here this morning grew up in the church. We learned God's truth as children. We hung around with other people who learned God's truth as children. But if we are going to share that truth with the world as God commanded, we need to understand that the world is very skeptical when it comes to God and his people. Some question basic things that we have just always believed. Some ask, well, did Jesus really exist? Did he, in fact, die on a cross? Did he, three days later, rise from the dead? Well, let's, let's dig into that a little bit. The truth is, even the most cynical, unbelieving historians agree that a man named Jesus did, in fact, live on this earth, that he did, in fact, die on a Roman cross on a Friday, that he was, in fact, buried in a tomb, and that that tomb was, in fact, empty on Sunday morning. So how do unbelievers reconcile their unbelief with an empty grave? Well, some contend that the disciples stole the body of Jesus and then made up a story that he rose from the dead. But that discounts the hundreds of people who testified to seeing Jesus alive with their own eyes. A truth not only reported in the Bible, but has been corroborated in many other books written at that time. And it is clear from the recorded testimony of these witnesses that Jesus didn't just pop in and out after he died. He spent time with some of them. He ate with them, even touched some of them. Yet unbelievers still don't believe. They discount all that eyewitness testimony. They say the disciples must have stolen the body. But something else to consider about this disciples stealing the body theory. I mean, think about it. If the disciples stole the body, it was obvious that Jesus then was, in fact, dead. And if Jesus was still dead, that means there was no resurrection. And if the disciples knew that there was no resurrection, that Jesus was in fact dead, then why were they so willing to endure persecution, many of them eventually being killed in horrifying ways? Why would they endure such torment for something they knew was a lie? Well, the Bible doesn't give us all the details of the disciples' demise, but according to tradition, we understand that Bartholomew, for example, was cruelly beaten and crucified. Thomas, stabbed to death with spears. James, killed by the sword. James, son of Alphaeus, was stoned to death. Philip was murdered. Andrew was crucified. Matthew was killed with a sharp spike fastened to an axe blade. 
According to historians, John was the only one of the 12 disciples to die of natural causes, but that was only after he had been immersed in a barrel of boiling oil. Some early church writers say that Peter was killed by crucifixion, and making that even more horrific was that he insisted that he be hung upside down because he didn't want to die the same way that his Jesus died. Yet unbelievers say the disciples stole the body and made up a story that Jesus rose from the dead. I mean, just imagine the disciples planning that cover-up. Matthew says, so here's the plan, guys. We're going to steal Jesus' body, and we're going to tell everyone that he rose again. Now, people are going to say it's disinformation. Facebook is going to fact check us. But we can't back down, okay? we got to stick to the plan. Then Peter says, yeah, but what's in it for us? And Matthew says, what's in it for us? Well, people are going to falsely accuse us. They're going to mock us. They're going to beat us to a bloody pulp. They're going to throw us in prison. Our reputation is going to be shot. Our families will be in jeopardy. We're never, ever going to be able to get a job. And eventually, we're either going to be speared, stoned, or crucified upside down. Wow, where do I sign up, right? <laughs> Friends, make no mistake about it. The disciples were perfectly willing to die horrible deaths because they knew the truth. The grave was empty because Jesus had come back to life. Now, other historians through the years have speculated that the Romans stole the body, that they took the body because they knew the disciples would probably do it and then say that he rose again. But the Romans stealing the body theory doesn't hold any water either. If the Romans stole the body so that the disciples wouldn't, they undoubtedly would have put it on display for all to see. I mean, what better way to dispute the disciples' claim that Jesus was alive than by showing everyone the dead body? So that theory doesn't wash. And then there are some unbelievers who have adopted what is called the swoon theory. And I just saw this promoted on Facebook a few weeks ago. The belief that the tomb was empty because Jesus wasn't actually dead when he was placed in it. That he was unconscious, but he was still alive. And that somehow being in that cool, dark tomb revived him. Well, that theory is preposterous for many reasons, not the least of which was the Romans were really good at killing people. It was common practice for Romans after a person was crucified to pierce the victim's side with a sword. And if blood and water flowed out of the body, it was the indisputable sign of death because blood and water showed that the red and white blood corpuscles had separated, something that only happens after circulation stops. So what does the Bible say happened after Jesus uttered those words, it is finished? John 19, one of the soldiers pierced Jesus' side with a spear, bringing a sudden flow of blood and water. And think about it. To believe the swoon theory, one has to believe that after all Jesus had endured 
up to and during the crucifixion, after all the beatings and scourging and blood loss, a sword thrust in his side, Jesus, with no medical intervention, after just three days of recovery, stood up in the tomb, moved the stone away from the opening by himself, a stone that archaeologists say weighed between one and two tons, then single-handedly overpowered the armed guards and walked away. <laughs> I don't know about you, but I could never be an atheist. I just don't have that much faith. Yet, there are many in our world who have rejected God's truth, who have chosen not to believe the events of Resurrection Sunday, who deny the empty grave, some have even gone so far as to deny, deny the existence of God. And can we just be honest about why that really is? <laughs> I mean, if a person were to believe that God's word is true, that means that they will be held accountable for their sinful lifestyles. And unbelievers, by and large, don't want anyone telling them what they can and cannot do. I mean, let's call it what it is. In many cases, it's not that people reject the empty grave for lack of evidence. They reject the empty grave for lack of morals. They reject the empty grave because they believe that freedom is being able to do whatever you want, wherever you want, whenever you want, with whomever you want. Yet God's word says that is the polar opposite of true freedom. That is what the Bible refers to as being a slave to sin. Friends, freedom belongs to those of us who know that Jesus paid the price for our sins on the cross, that he rose victorious over sin and death and hell. Freedom belongs to those of us who know beyond a shadow of a doubt that that grave was empty. Listen to these words spoken by Jesus to believers found in John chapter 8. Jesus said, if you abide in my word, you are truly my disciples. And you will know the truth and the truth will set you free. They answered him, we are offspring of Abraham and have never seen anyone enslaved. How is it that you say you will become free? Jesus answered them. Truly, truly, I say to you, everyone who commits sin is a slave to sin. The slave does not remain in the house forever. The son remains forever. So if the son sets you free, you will be free indeed. Now that last verse is one of the most inspirational phrases in all of scripture if the sun sets you free you are free indeed those of us who experience salvation in christ the one and only source of truth are no longer slaves we are free check out this truth in romans 6 since we have been united with him in his death we also will be raised to life as he was we know that our old sinful selves were crucified with Christ so that sin might lose its power in our lives. We are no longer slaves to sin. For when we died with Christ, we were set free from the power of sin. Now, wait a minute. If we are 
free from the power of sin, why then do we still sin? Well, I'm glad you asked. It's because even though Christ died to save us from our sin, we are still fallen human beings. Salvation in Christ frees us from the power that sin once had over us. That is truth. See, when we are slaves to sin, we serve it willingly. The Bible tells us that when we are slaves to sin, it's impossible to please God. But when we surrender our lives to Christ, we become God's sons and daughters. And just as sons and daughters disobey their parents as they grow, sometimes even willfully, God's children sometimes disobey him. I have a friend with a three-year-old son who came home from work one day and his wife met him at the front door and just handed him the child. This is never a good sign. She said, this kid is going to drive me crazy. He's been ornery all day. I'm trying to do some baking. He kept hiding my cooking utensils. I found him in the garbage. I told him to stay in the living room for a time out, and he took his crayons and wrote all over the walls. Then he dumped the cat's litter box on the floor. So to protect the son's life, dad took care of him for the rest of the night. And as he was putting him to bed, dad said, Noah, today was a rough day. We need to pray that tomorrow will be different. And Noah looked up and said, nah, tomorrow's going to be rough too. <laughs> now we laugh, but how often don't we act that same way? We have been freed from the power of sin by Jesus' death and resurrection, and yet we willfully sin. You know, I, I mentioned that, that the truth we're focusing on this morning is that we experience freedom because the grave was empty. But to fully comprehend the power of that truth, we have to understand we have an enemy who doesn't want us to experience the freedom of the empty grave. An enemy who will do whatever he can to prevent that from happening. And as a result, there are many fully loved, fully forgiven believers, perhaps even some of you here this morning, who because of our sinful nature are not living the kind of lives that God longs for us to live. And as a result, we're not experiencing the freedom that was won for us by that empty grave. Now, there are all kinds of things the enemy uses to hold us down and to keep us from being free indeed. This morning, I'd like to look just briefly at three common things the enemy uses to hold us captive and keep us from being fully free in Christ. Now, I'll warn you, some of us super responsible, task-oriented Dutchmen aren't going to like this first one. But the truth is... There are many well-intentioned believers who are not experiencing the freedom that God longs for us to experience because of busyness. Busyness. Because we work too much. You know, workaholism is an epidemic in our country. And we, especially we men, 
wear busyness like a badge of honor. We brag about how many hours we work each week. We're prideful about all we do to provide for our family, and yet we're not providing our spouse and kids with what they need the most, and that is time with us, investment in their lives. I staff men's retreats called Battle Cry. And I can't tell you how many men have come to our weekend saying they need balance in their lives. And what they're really saying is, I'm too busy. And busyness, even if we're busy doing good and noble things, can have an adverse effect on every aspect of our lives. We work, we work, we work, then we go to church, and we work some more, and we fall into bed every night physically, mentally, emotionally spent. Even our spiritual lives are affected. We're so busy doing things for God that we have no time to spend with God. Friends, that's not freedom. I love this quote from Corey Ten Boom. She said, if the devil can't make us bad, he'll make us busy. Friends, we will never experience the true freedom that God wants us to have when we are enslaved to our to-do lists. So the enemy uses busyness to keep believers from experiencing that true freedom of the empty grave. Now perhaps being too busy is not an issue for you. Maybe you are here this morning missing out on the freedom that Christ came to give because you are carrying the burden of shame. Something I see a lot of in my work. People who are so fixated on yesterday that they're not living life to the full today. Author Michael McMillan once said, you can't start the next chapter of your life if you keep rereading the last one. I compare it to driving a car without ever taking your eyes off the rearview mirror. You're not going to get very far, let me tell you. If you're just focused on that rearview mirror, and yet that is how many people are choosing to go through life. Fixated only on what's back there, what is in the past. Beating ourselves up, sometimes carrying enormous burdens over what happened back there. Our failures, our regrets, sometimes over things that happened years ago. Either things we did or that were done to us that continue to just weigh heavily on us. Does that sound like freedom? Friends, we cannot experience true freedom. We cannot experience the beauty of the present and the promise of the future if we choose to live in the past. There is a reason the rearview mirror is this big and the windshield is this big. We are to live in the present. We are to look forward to the future. But we've got to keep our past behind us. The truth is we're all affected by our past. But there's a big difference between being affected by our past and being defined by it. And being defined by our past is commonly known as a victim mindset. And boy, are we seeing a lot of that in our world today. 
people going through life saying, poor me, look what happened to me, I am so oppressed. Some people play that victim role so well they should carry their own body chalk, for heaven's sake. Please hear me. And I'm not minimizing painful things that may have happened in our past, but being a victim is a choice. It's a choice. See, none of us can control the bad things that happen to us, but we can control how we respond to them. And I'm here to tell you, uh, no matter how painful our past may have been, we serve a God of hope. And that same power that enabled Jesus to overcome the grave can enable you and me to overcome a painful past. The empty grave gives us freedom. Yet so many of us are choosing to be held captive by the shame of our past. And something I need to point out, because in our world we often use those words guilt and shame interchangeably, but they are very different. Let's take a look. You see, guilt has to do with our behavior, but shame, on the other hand, has to do with our character. Guilt tells us what we've done is bad, Shame tells us we are bad. You see, shame is so much deeper than guilt or embarrassment over things we've done or were done to us. Shame is the voice of the enemy telling us, you're defective. You're flawed. You are unworthy. You are irredeemable. And friends, if that voice is all too familiar to you, you can know with absolute certainty that that is not the voice of our God. When he walked this earth, Jesus encountered all kinds of people who did some pretty deplorable things, people who were blatant sinners, and never once did he use shame as a motivator to change their wrongful behavior. Never. In fact, he had some pretty harsh words for those who did. But what did Jesus do? Jesus met people in the depth of their sin, and he loved them. That is truth. And my friends, he does the same with you and me. Jesus gives us the opposite of shame. Jesus gives us honor, respect, a sense of belonging, forgiveness, worthiness. Jesus enables us to overcome our shame so that we can walk in freedom. And friends, we need to understand Jesus not only took our sins to the cross, he took our shame there. We weren't meant to carry that with us for the rest of our lives. The empty grave gives us freedom over shame. You know, the, the Bible contains dozens of different names for God, and each one, of this, each one of them tells us something about God's wonderful character. Creator, Savior, Redeemer, Shepherd, Wonderful Counselor, Friend of Sinners. But in the book of Psalms, David uses an interesting name for God. In Psalm 3, he refers to God as the lifter of our head. The lifter of our head. Friends, 
if we're going through life with our heads hanging low because of things we are ashamed of, Jesus gently takes our chin in his hand and says, no, you can hold your head up high. You are my child. I paid a very high price for you. I died and rose again to free you from the burden of shame. Others may condemn you for the things you've done. You may condemn yourself, but with me, there is no condemnation. None. No matter what you've done, no matter how many times you've done it, we have been set free from the bondage of sin. We are not defined by what we've done. We're defined by who we are. And Jesus says we are children of the king. That's who we are. So the empty grave frees us from the burden of busyness. It lifts our head when the enemy inflicts us with shame. And the third powerful weapon the enemy uses to keep us in chains is unforgiveness. And in my ministry, I see so many believers carrying this burden. Now, friends, we can be held captive by unforgiveness in three different ways. The first way is by not forgiving others. Genuine, godly forgiveness when people have wronged us is necessary for us to experience the freedom that God intends for us to have. And God makes it pretty clear in his word. Ephesians 4.32 says, Be kind and compassionate to one another, forgiving each other, just as in Christ God forgave you. But you know, a, a common sticking point, even for Christians, is that forgiving others for hurting us feels like we're giving the offender a pass. So we hold on to the offense. Well, can I ask you something? What happens to a person that just can't let go of something someone has done or said to them? I mean, man, it affects us. Sometimes to the point where we're consumed by what that other person did or said. And we can't eat. We can't sleep. We're always on edge. We may experience headaches or stomach problems, even depression. Does that sound like freedom? To make matters worse, our offender's sleeping like a baby. <laughs> What's wrong with this picture? Here's the deal, my friends. We don't forgive because the other person deserves it. We forgive because we do. Nothing is as exhausting as carrying a grudge. So God offers to take that burden from us and set us free. You know, it's a lot easier to forgive someone who admits they hurt us, right? But what about those people who will never admit that what they've done was wrong? And they'd do it again if they had the chance. Does that mean that forgiveness now can't happen? No. Forgiveness still needs to take place. It's just that now it's no longer a transaction between you and the offender. It's a transaction between you and your God. In those situations, we must ask God to give us the strength to let it go. 
And again, forgiving others is not giving them a pass. It's not denying that their words and actions actually hurt us. Forgiving others doesn't mean we're excusing their behavior. It means that we're choosing not to be held captive by it. Carrying a grudge will never make you a stronger person. You know what will? Forgiveness. Forgiveness. And when it comes to experiencing fully the freedom that our Heavenly Father has to offer us, forgiveness is not optional. We cannot expect to receive His forgiveness if we refuse to extend it to those who hurt us. Yeah, another way we can be held in bondage by unforgiveness is by not asking others to forgive us when we hurt them. Now many, if not most of us, don't like to admit it when we're wrong, do we? But if we want others to admit their wrongdoing to us, we need to own our wrongdoing. You know, when I speak to dad's groups, I tell them, as important as it is to tell your kids, I love you, even more important is to tell your kids, I'm sorry, when we mess up. I have had men tell me they have never heard those words from their father, ever. When a dad is wrong, and everyone knows he's wrong, even he knows he's wrong, but he never admits it, what message does that send to his kids? That doesn't show strength. That shows a lack of integrity. But when a dad messes up, and he owns it, and he asks forgiveness, he models to his children and others what God Honoring repentance and forgiveness looks like. A few years ago, I went on a health plan, and as a result, I had to give up drinking pop, and I found this zero-calorie, zero-sugar drink from Costco. Well, my wife and I like to see movies, and we went to a movie one night, and I brought one of my little bottles of pop with me. Hot summer night, we parked the car, trudge all the way across the parking lot, get inside, pay for the tickets, and ah, I left my drink outside. So trudge all the way back outside, unlock the car, grab the drink, come back in, and this kid taking the ticket said, you can't come in here with that. I said, what do you mean I can't come in here? No, you're not allowed to bring any outside drinks or food. What do you mean I'm not allowed to bring any? I get indignant about this. Well, what do you mean? What do you mean? He said, it's, it's policy. I said, I've done it before. He said, well, you shouldn't have been able to do it. So I got a little irritated. So I go back outside, bring the beverage back to my vehicle, come back inside and said, I want to talk to your manager. So I talked to the manager, and he affirms what the kid had already told me. It's policy. You're not allowed to bring that stuff in. Well, I am never coming to AMC again. I'm having myself a little hissy fit. Mr. Let's Help Everybody Overcome Adversity in Their Life can't handle it when he's told he can't bring a beverage into a theater. So in a huff, I go to the, the, go to, go to the, the theater we were in. I sit down next to my wife. And I look down, and I'm wearing a compassion t-shirt. <laughs> Guys, I don't even remember what movie we saw, because all I could think about was what I had done. 
And when the movie was over, I looked for that kid and I didn't see him. About three weeks later, we went back to the theater and he took our tickets and he obviously didn't recognize me and we went into the theater and we sat down. I thought, no, I, I know what I need to do. So I just got up and I went back into the lobby and I walked up to the young man and I just said, you obviously don't remember me, but about three weeks ago, you told me I couldn't bring a beverage in and uh, I, did not, I did not treat you with respect. And I want you to know I'm sorry. And he tried to minimize it. Oh, don't worry about it. People try to bring in food all the time. I said, no, I need you to hear something. You were doing your job, and I was wrong. And I'm asking you to forgive me. This is a young 15, 16-year-old African-American guy. I thought he was going to hug me. He was so moved by what I had done. You know, not admitting our mistakes and our sins does not make us stronger people. Forgiveness does. And God convicted me that I had to take a hard look at what was underneath that behavior. And often the underlying issue of not asking forgiveness when others hurt us is something the Bible refers to not just as a sin that God doesn't like, but a sin that God detests, and that is pride. And friends, we will never experience complete freedom in Christ if our pattern is to pridefully cover up our mistakes and never admit it when we're wrong. That not only hurts those we've offended, it hurts us. So yes, we've got to forgive others who hurt us. We've got to ask forgiveness when we hurt others. But to fully experience the freedom we were meant to experience, we must also learn how to forgive ourselves. Have you ever thought that God couldn't possibly forgive you because what you did was just unforgivable? Or that because you keep doing the same sinful thing over and over, that somehow God's grace for you has just run out? If so, listen to these straightforward words from 1 John 1. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just and will forgive us our sins and purify us from all unrighteousness. Now, friends, there is no little asterisk by that verse in the Bible that leads to a footnote that says, unless you're divorced, unless you're an alcoholic or you do drugs, or unless you committed sexual sin, because we all know sexual sin is worse than all the other sins. No, no, no. God states it very clearly. We confess, he forgives, and then he takes it a step further. He purifies us. He instantly takes those sin-stained rags from our shoulders and he puts on us robes of righteousness. It doesn't matter what we've done. It doesn't matter how many times we've done it. At the instant we ask forgiveness, we are fully forgiven, fully accepted. That is truth. Now, getting back to what the world believes, 
make no mistake about it. It is faith in the living Jesus that sets us free. In fact, he is the only way to the freedom we long for. And that is not a politically correct thing to say in our world today. Because the world teaches there are many, many, many ways to peace and freedom. You get to choose what works best for you. Well, there's an old Greek term for that kind of thinking. Lotus Acrapicus. Let me say it again. Jesus is the only way to the freedom we long for. There is no other way. Look at who people in this world are putting their trust in. Now, Christians, of course, believe in Christ. Mormons follow Joseph Smith and Brigham Young. Nation of Islam puts their trust in Muhammad. Seventh-day Adventists in Esther G. White. Others put their trust in leaders like Confucius and Buddha and Zeus. But I want you to think about something. Every single one of the people I just mentioned died. All but one are still dead. Millions of people in our world today are putting their hope and trust in dead people. But Christians, our hope, our trust is in Jesus Christ who is no longer dead. In fact, he is very much alive. He has risen from the grave. He has conquered sin and death and hell. He has paid the debt that we owe and he has promised eternal life to all who believe. He is the way, the truth, and the life. And no one, no one, no one comes to the Father except through him. The truth of the empty grave, he was set free so we could be set free. And if the sun sets us free, we are free indeed. Some time ago, I heard for the first time a, a, a story some of you may have heard before, but it's a story of a little boy named Philip. Philip was eight years old and was in a Sunday school class with nine other children, but Philip was different from the other children. You see, Philip was born with Down's syndrome. And because Philip didn't look like the other kids and act like them, he was made to feel different. Sometimes he was even teased and bullied by the other kids. Well, on Easter Sunday, the, the teacher gave empty plastic eggs to each child. And they were instructed to go outside the building and put into the egg something that would remind them of the meaning of Easter. And eventually, each of the ten kids marched back into the class excited, waiting for their eggs to be opened by the teacher. And as their egg was open, they had opportunity to share why they chose the particular object they chose to put in the egg. Well, one student put in a twig and explained that that reminded him of the wooden cross. One put in a flower, another a butterfly, each of them explaining that that represented new life. But when the teacher opened the last egg, there was nothing in it. It was empty. The kids immediately started laughing. Who didn't get it right, they chided. Who's the stupid one? The mocking continued until Philip, who was near tears, finally blurted out, it's my egg. 
kids laughed even harder. Philip, you are so dumb. The teacher asked, Philip, if, if you didn't understand what you were supposed to do, you should have asked me. Philip, who was now crying, insisted, I did, I did understand. The grave was empty. The room fell silent. Philip, the special needs boy, had the most meaningful response of all. From that day on, Philip was in included by the other kids. He was part of the group. It's as if that day God set him free from the tomb of differentness. Just a few months later, at the end of summer, Philip died. His family had known since he had been born that there were things wrong with his body and that he wouldn't live a full lifespan. And at his memorial service, Philip's life was celebrated by those who knew him. But his parents had no idea just how special their little boy was until the end of the service, when nine eight-year-old children, along with their Sunday school teacher, marched up to the front of the church and placed in Philip's casket ten empty plastic eggs, remembering the greatest truth anyone had ever shared with them, a truth shared by an eight-year-old special needs classmate. The grave was empty. That is the central truth of the Christian faith, a truth that gives us freedom from the shackles of sin and shame and anything the enemy would use to hold us captive. If the sun sets you free, you are free indeed. Let's pray together. Father God, how grateful we are that you are a God of truth. And this morning we cling to your truth and we pray that we will experience that freedom that you long for your children to experience. And we offer this prayer in the mighty name of our Jesus. Amen.